0: Otherwise, either way, turn to Isaiah chapter 53. This morning I want to read verses 10, 11, and 12. Although we looked primarily at verse 10 our last time together, I'll go ahead and read those as we look at 11 and 12 this morning. Thank you guys for leading us this morning as we get the the joy and the privilege of singing praises to our God Now we continue our worship. We don't suspend or stop our worship, but we continue our worship now as we look at God's word. Isaiah 53, verses 10, 11, and 12. This is God's word for us today, and here's what God says Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. And he makes transgression. He makes intercession for the transgressors. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There's no word like your word. Our prayer is that as we spend these next few moments in your word, that by your spirit you would teach us. Not so that we would just simply know a couple more things, but that we would be changed by these things. Transform us, Father, to see wonderful things about our Lord Jesus from this text of yours. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our summer scripture passage is these 15 verses that we've been making our way through from Isaiah Really, we began back in chapter 52, verse 13, and uh, the 15th verse will be chapter 53, verse 12. These 15 verses are really a song, a song of the suffering servant. These are, these are prophecies that were written some over 700 years before they actually unfolded and took place, and yet nothing is too difficult for God, even predicting the future 700 years in advance. These are prophecies that describe what Jesus would do on behalf of his people. And these 15 verses are divided into uh, five stanzas, three verses apiece. And as I've noted before, the, the first stanza, which is chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, they uh, correspond or parallel the section that we're in right now, our fifth stanza, chapter 52, uh, 53, verses um, uh, 10, 11, and 12. The second stanza p- corresponds with the fourth stanza, and then the centerpiece was that third stanza that was standalone, the central component of this passage. But these stanzas that parallel each other, they introduce the same or similar concepts. So, for instance, uh, in that first stanza, it uh, it did this interesting interplay between the the, the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, and yet the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He would suffer immensely, and yet he would succeed greatly. And this is this, really the same um, thing that we're considering now in the last three verses, 10, 11, and 12. Our last time together two weeks ago. Uh, we looked primarily at verse 10. These are words that Isaiah was saying about the successful outcome, the, the immense suffering and, and yet the successful outcome of what Christ did in his suffering and his work on the cross. And now verses 11 and 12 kind of begin to pivot, and, and much of 11 and 12 is not merely what Isaiah is saying about the suffering servant but we'll see the shift here in a minute. It is what God himself says about the suffering servant. Two things I want us to think about just for a few moments this morning concerning primarily verses 11 and 12. I want us to see, first of all, something of the personal outcome of the suffering servant. He will be personally successful, if you would, in terms of his outcome. And if I do this the way I've intended, we'll spend um, not as much time on that first point. Um, and then we'll look at the second point, which, which I'm calling the people's outcome by the suffering servant. So the, the servant will be personally successful in terms of the outcome, and, and yet his personal success will, will define and bleed over into his people's success. The outcome that comes to all who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look, at, first of all, at the personal outcome. You remember in verse 10, we, we read in these jarring statements that it was the Lord's will to crush Jesus God himself had something very intentional in the plans to put Jesus forth on the cross. Yes, we could say that wicked men did great harm in, in, in a, a bogusly arresting and, uh, and uh, ridiculously trying and horrifically putting Jesus on the cross. And yet, all that those wicked men did in their wickedness was simply carry out the preordained plan of God to put His Son, Jesus, on that cross. This was no surprise. This was no scrambling for a plan B. And, 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 and yet, while it was God's will to crush His Son, we also read at the end of verse 10, it's God's will that He would cause His Son, whom He crushed, to prosper. In other words, built into, uh, this is never, boy, I hope this turns out okay somehow. But all along, the plan was for the Lamb of God to be slain. In fact, we could could imply on one hand, he was slain before the foundation of the world because it was a part of God's eternal plan. And and yet, that gets worked out in time and space and history that at at a moment in time, Jesus goes to the cross. And then what's what's not in play is, boy, how's this thing going to turn out? It was the will of God to crush his son. It was the will of God to grant success to his son. Christ was sent by the Father to do the will of the Father. he, 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 He did something that first and foremost was done in, in pertinence to God. God sent Jesus to do something. D- to be crushed. And after he was crushed, uh, he, he, was, he was sent uh, by the Father to be, if you would, raised up, to prosper, to succeed. And then he says in verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul. See, so he's already said back in verse 10 when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Now, so out of the anguish of a soul, uh, 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 he shall see and be satisfied. After experiencing the very darkness of death, It was God's will to crush his son. It was God's will that his son die on that cross. It was God's will that Jesus taste death for us. And yet death was not the final outcome for Jesus. You see, as we gather this morning... And as we've sang songs about Jesus, as we've sang songs to Jesus, it's important to realize the status of Jesus. He is no longer on that cross. To portray him as still hanging there on that cross implies he ain't done yet. And yet, when he hung on that cross, he said, it is finished. I did it. I completely accomplished that for which I was sent to accomplish. I don't have to keep on doing it. I, I, this is no longer uh, in play. This is, the outcome of this is uh, no longer in question. I died on the cross... And in so doing, I accomplished what my father had sent me to do, to be a substitute, to at a moment of time, the eternal Son of God would experience the eternal wrath of God that was elicited because God himself was eternally offended by us and our sin. And yet in a moment of time, the eternal Son of God could satisfy eternal divine justice at a moment in time and space and history. He doesn't have to keep dying on the cross. We gather and we celebrate an accomplished victory, not an, not an in-play, ongoing attempt at victory. Related to that, we certainly, it goes without saying for absolute need to be clear about this, we don't gather and pity a Jesus who's still somehow trapped in that grave, wondering if he will ever come out. No, we gather and we celebrate a Jesus who's no longer on the cross and who is no longer in the grave. No, we gather and we celebrate a Jesus who is alive. Step back for a second. And we're looking at this in retrospect. Isaiah is calling this in prospect. I'm going to tell you, this house is going to play out. He's going to be crushed, and that's the will of the Father. And his hand will be caused to prosper. He will, he will out of the anguish of his soul, see and be satisfied The the implication there is that he will see and be satisfied as he's on that cross, he's going to be laid in that tomb, but he will be back. This is no lucky coincidence. Boy, I'm sure glad it turned out well for him. This is a part of what God has already always been scheming to do, and he successfully accomplished it through the death and the burial and the resurrection of his son. Even while he was here on this earth, for instance, take like John chapter 8. he wanted to prepare his followers for this reality. I'm giving you a heads up, guy. You guys, you, you, you guys know that I'm now the Christ, the son of the living God. I'm glad you know that. But, but then he says in John 8, 31, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the, um, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And then he says, and after three days, rise again. Jesus had that consciousness. The the scriptures themselves that he read taught him that awareness, that consciousness, that that I know where I'm going. I know why I was sent. I was sent to do the will of the Father, which means I was sent to be crushed on the cross for the weight of sin, but I was also sent to be crushed on the cross that, that I might be raised or that I might rise again on the third day. Even in Luke chapter 24, after his resurrection, as he's on the road to Emmaus. And, and the, those guys are completely bummed out because all that they remember is that Jesus died and was buried. What they don't know is that the guy that they're, that they're relating to at that moment in a bummed out way is the one whom they don't realize. Not only did he die, not only was he buried, but he was raised. They're talking to him. And what does he do? He's not, we're told that in taking the scriptures, in other words, in taking arguably passages like Isaiah 53, other passages from the Old Testament scriptures, so that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So how Isaiah is, is describing the personal outcome, successful outcome of Jesus is just right there in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see. In other words, he shall see life again. He shall see light again. He will no longer just see death and darkness. He shall see and be satisfied. The, now we're gonna to transition to the second point because they're tied together, the good personal outcome of Jesus. Guess what that translates into? A good personal outcome for all who are trusting in Jesus. Something that Paul would say in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that he was crucified for our transgressions And he was raised for our justification. Justification. Freddie mentioned that last week in his sermon from Galatians chapter 3. And and one of the things that Freddie said in passing um, is he said that, that uh, uh, when Paul teaches about the doctrine of justification, he's, he's not teaching a new concept. That that the doctrine of justification is actually a concept. It's a teaching that was taught in the Old Testament. Now, he wasn't in the Old Testament, so he just said that and then moved on to the rest of his sermon in, in Galatians chapter 3, which is fine. That was his assignment. That was what he purposed to do, explain Galatians chapter 3. But, but in a sense, when I heard that, I thought, well, that's what, that's what we're unpacking in, a, in, in Isaiah 53, an Old Testament passage. We're, we're unpacking how the Old Testament teaches us something about the doctrine of justification. Look what it says in the second part of verse 11, where it says, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. He says, by his knowledge, which I take that to mean, and we'll come back to this in a second, by knowledge of him, so not, not his own knowledge of himself, but by our knowledge of him. But by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their Iniquities. Isaiah fifty-three is teaching us what Freddie said last week, and that is the doctrine of justification is not an, a new New Testament concept. It it was taught and introduced to us in the Old Testament. Now, as in true with every doctrine, there's a progression. Uh, the Old Testament introduces us to concepts and teachings and doctrines that the that the New Testament comes and progressively fills in more blanks and provides us more details. Uh, And and yet what we are being told here in Isaiah 53 is that something about Jesus that he does, that he successfully accomplishes, the fact that he he has a good outcome, he was raised from the dead, has implication on how you and I would be counted as righteous in the presence of God. It's a good outcome for the people of God. Uh, because of what the Son of God has done. Now, I would just add by that, just as a sidebar, now, I'm not implying that the first time we hear anything about righteousness uh, is Isaiah 53. No, we could arguably go back to Genesis, and the the most clearest example is Genesis 3.15. I'm I'm sorry, Genesis 15.6, where we're told that an Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. So what's this thing called righteousness? What's this thing that that Isaiah is talking about here, about how because of the successful outcome of Jesus, who is described here beautifully as the righteous one, the very servant of God, that many will be accounted righteous because of the person and work of the righteous one. Well, really what we're asking is, how in the world do people like you and I, I mean, I don't know if it's dawned on you, but we are flawed, imperfect people. How in the world do people like you and I, flawed, imperfect, sinful people, I know you got dressed up for church just to be called a sinner, uh, but, but how, how do people like us Acquire a right relationship with God. Because to have a right relationship with God, God is holy and righteous, he's pure, he's perfect. There's no flaw or defect in him whatsoever. His eyes are too pure to even look on evil. So how is it that you and I could, could be in right relationship with him to such an extent that we're actually righteous? as a standing before him, because that's the only way we could be in right relationship with him is that we must be righteous before him. I don't know, you think you could pull it off? I don't think so. And it's just not my opinion. The scriptures tell us none are righteous. And just in case you think, well, there's a loophole in that none not righteous. And he goes, no, not one. So it probably means that we have to lump ourselves into that. None are righteous. No, not one. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The, look, the, the deep tension of Scripture is not how could God send people to hell. That's an easy one to figure out. He's holy and righteous, and we are sinful and rebellious. And so it's just a matter of just strict justice would require that the guilty go get punished. That's, the scandal of Scripture is not how does God send people to hell. The scandal of Scripture is how does God, who is holy and just, allow sinful people in his presence and they get the love to tell about it? How is it that the wrath of God is not immediately and eternally dumped on them, which is what hell will be like how long does it take for a finite creature to satisfy eternal divine justice? Forever. So how, 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 do you, how can you and I make a claim that, that we are in relationship with this holy and righteous God How how is it that we could say that we are reconciled with him, we live at peace with him, which we'll talk about more next week, Lord willing, but but that that we could be reconciled and be at peace with him, and we we could have all the bounty of his blessings, as we talked about in Ephesians, as Freddie talked about in Ephesians 1 this morning, that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. How, How do you get guilty people who are justly condemned to be the recipients of all divine blessings? Well, you just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and you just say, well, golly, this week I'm going to try better. I'm going to do harder. I'm, in fact, I'm going to I'm going to go to church this week. I, I'm, I'm going to do some religious things and I'm really going to make God sit up and take notice of that. Joe, he's one righteous dude, isn't he? And not how this works. If you and I could make ourselves righteous in the sight of God, tell me again why Jesus had to come. Tell me again why it was the will of God to crush his son when he didn't really need to go out and do something like that anyway. You and I can fix this because we can't fix this. There is no way that you and I in our finite, limited, sinful, rebellious posture that, that we could remedy the, the, the breach, the chasm between us and a holy God. That's why there needed to be a rescue mission. That's why Jesus was sent, and that's why it was the will of God to crush Jesus, because the only one who was righteous, the righteous one, my servant, was crushed on behalf of all of those who are completely unrighteous. There's the word we keep bumping into this summer, substitution. The righteous one substituted himself for the unrighteous ones. The unrighteous ones could not do it on their own. They needed a divine substitute who could satisfy divine justice, who could absorb divine wrath, who could conquer eternal condemnation and eternal curse. And the only way that we could do that, the only way God could do that was to put forward as one who is perfectly flawless and righteous, one who would substitute himself for us, and for our salvation. We could not do that ourselves. As Freddie talked about last week, it, it could not be our law-keeping. It, it, it could not be, as elsewhere, it's uh, alleged even in the song that we just sang prior to this, it could not be in our good works. It could not be in our obedience. Not, not, that, there's a, not that there's an importance for each of those Notions to be understood and to understand the importance of them, but law, neither law keeping, nor good works, nor obedience, nor love, uh, could, enough of that could be done by us to satisfy divine justice, to give us a right standing before God so that we could live in a right relationship with God. Completely out of the question, biblically that we could do this, that we could fix this, that we could acquire a righteousness. Someone else had to do this for us. And who might that be? Well, who have we been singing about? Who have we been preaching about? Who does Isaiah 53 point us to? Jesus the Righteousness One, the suffering servant of God, who it says at the tail end of verse 11, He shall bear their iniquities. Now, we could build upon a fuller understanding of that as, as as we look at some of the New Testament passages that more fully massage and, and unpack this, the first one that comes to my mind that describes, I think, what's being in play here in Isaiah 53, 11, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Isaiah 53 uh, is builds the foundation up all once a patches, passage like 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us, for... Our sake. He, meaning God the Father, made him, meaning God the Son, uh, sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see the swap out here? To live in relationship with Jesus means that an exchange has been made. You have given Jesus your sin, and he has gone to the cross to die as a payment for the penalty and the curse and the condemnation of of your sin. And in exchange for taking your sin and dying on the cross for it, he gives to you his righteousness. The very righteousness that he demonstrated by the perfect moral life that he lived He earned a record of righteousness, and he's gifted that to all who trust in him. This is is huge. Uh, On the one hand, we should rejoice that we've been forgiven of our sins in Christ Jesus. But I want you to understand that um, as humongous and as wonderful and as worthy of rejoicing as the notion of forgiveness is, you and I have been given more than forgiveness. We We are more than innocent of the charges. We are declared righteous. That is our standing. That's how God now sees us, and he tells us that's how he sees us, so that it might slowly and surely over time, as we marinate on this, see ourselves that same way. So that we begin to act like that a little bit at a time. We're not just pardoned people. We are declared not guilty, but we also are declared righteous in the sight of God who would have thought holy Joe who would have thought that someone like you and I could have a standing before God that would bring us into right relationship with him because the way God now sees us is he now sees us as holy and righteous in his sight isn't that Freddie got us started on that in Ephesians 1, that, that we might be holy and blameless in His sight. How would the world—look, I, I know some of you, and you know some of me. You don't know the half of it, though. But you, you are not holy and righteous people. It depends on how you describe it, isn't it? In terms of our actual experience— Our lived out week this past week and our dreaded lived out week this present week, we are far from perfect in that sense. And yet, and yet, You and I have a secure relationship with a holy God, and the basis upon that is that the righteous one, Jesus Christ, has taken our sins, the only one qualified to pull this off, and the only one being the God and the man who is is the one qualified to do this, he has done this for us and for our salvation so that... Um, Galatians 2, 16 would say a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Or in Romans 4, 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Or in Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. You and I do not accomplish a body of work that would be righteous enough to have a standing before God. But the righteous one has come and he earned a body of work that is righteous and he's given it to all who trust in him, even as he's taken all of our sins, away from us. Let's come back and look at the first part of, of, of that second half of verse 11. out of the anguish of a soul, he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge. Remember what I said about that? I said the, I would argue that the way to take that is not out of, out of Jesus' knowledge of himself, but out of our knowledge of Jesus. Really, we're asking the question, so this righteousness that Jesus acquired, that he gives to his people, so how, what 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 is it that we do that we could have this acquired righteousness? What do we do? We turn to Jesus. We And the language that Isaiah uses to describe turning to Jesus is that he's the one we must know. By our knowledge of him, we must know Jesus. For, for us to be counted as righteous, before God, we must know some things about the righteous one. We must know who he is. We must know who he has done. Uh, but We must know who he is. We must know what he has done. And then in knowing who he is and what he has done, because I think a lot of people know some things about Jesus, but I fear that there's some people that in knowing a thing or two about Jesus don't know him in an experiential way, which is really what we're talking about here. You know that Jesus died on the cross. You know that Jesus was the sinless Son of God. You know that Jesus was raised from the dead. But do you know him? Do you merely know some things about him, or do you know him? Have you turned to him? Is there now a relationship between you and Jesus? Not just simply a religious affiliation, but a real relationship with this Jesus that this religious affiliation sometimes bumbles into and talks about. Do you know this Jesus? Are you trusting only in him? Is he the one whom you've heard personally by the witness of the Spirit, him say to you, come to me? all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Have you heard him say that to you, not vaguely or universally, but personally? And have you responded to that call? Yes, Jesus, I come to you. You are the righteous son of God. You are the one who has given up his life for the forgiveness of my sins so that I might be counted righteous This is is the difference between knowing some things about Jesus and knowing Jesus. The, The Apostle Paul describes it this way. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. It's more than just simply I know a thing or two about him. I could recite a few facts and spit them out to you. I could give you the right answer. Do you know Jesus? Paul would say, my desire, the beat of my heart, is to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. All who are trusting in Jesus this morning, All who are following Jesus this morning, which is really not a separate entity from trusting in Jesus. All who are in right relationship with Jesus. All who are in Christ Jesus have a standing before God that is perfect and righteous. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the things that it explains to us, we rejoice, Father, this morning, knowing that Jesus has bore up under the penalty of our sins. And so we rejoice in forgiveness. But we also rejoice in that Jesus has done more than than cleared our guilt. He He has declared us righteous. we marvel that your Son would do such a work for us and for our salvation. And so our prayer, Father, as we bring things to a close, is that the very focus of our lives, the very devotion of our hearts, the very reliance of our souls would be on the one and the only one who could grant to us a standing of righteousness in your sight. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us your righteousness. For we pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand.